welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Really happy to have you here. Uh, going to be a little bit limited on time today, so I'm going to turn immediately to my conversation. Very happy to have my guest on the line with me. So much going on in this country right now. It's very easy to forget about some of the really inspiring labor activism that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months. I have somebody with me today to talk about one aspect of that. Eric Blanc is with me. Uh, Eric is an educator and an activist. He is the author of the 2019 book that I would highly recommend to everybody, Red State Revolt, The Teacher Strike Wave, and Working Class Politics. That was published by Verso. He's a contributor to Jacobin, The Nation, and The Guardian. He's also a national surrogate for the Bernie Sanders campaign. You can follow him on Twitter at underscore Eric Blanc. Eric, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on and for all of the work you've been doing. And since we have limited amount of time tonight, I want to get right into it. And I want to ask you about how you got into doing this sort of work that you've done around education. What is your background? What is your experience that you kind of brought into the activism realm? Um, I had been a long-term substitute teacher in the Bay Area. And like a lot of educators in California and all across the country, it was just not viable to survive uh, off of a teaching wage. Um, so I, I went to grad school in 2017 to try to survive. And, you know, lo and behold, the teacher strike wave popped up in West Virginia and then, you know, spread across the country. And I had the opportunity, partly because of uh, being in grad school, to go and travel around and write about these strikes that were happening. And, you know, my background was as an organizer, as an activist. I've been active in public education organizing for well, since high school. So it, it really worked out really, uh, amazingly well. I was able to go to all of the strikes, uh, help build national solidarity for them and write about them. And that ultimately uh, culminated in the book. And so let's get into what you witnessed, what you experienced as you traveled around. I mean, we saw these um, labor uprisings from teachers in West Virginia. We've seen it in California, in Oklahoma, in Arizona, in other parts of the country as well. Uh, give us a little bit of a flavor about what you experienced. What were some of the commonalities, the common threads that you saw in all of these seemingly disparate places? And specifically, if you could focus that on how you saw these uh, activities happening against the backdrop of conservative states. I mean, the, the big story of, of these strikes is that you had literally millions of people getting a sense of their power for the first time. Really, that's the thread that weaves through all of the different states. You know, because unfortunately for decades in this country, working people have been just on the losing side of the class war with very little uh, to say in the way of victories. And so now, um, particularly since the West Virginia strike, what you saw is people realized that they had power. They, they, they realized that by withholding your labor, you can force an institution, whether it's a public institution or a private company, you can force management to listen to you and to meet your demands. So, you know, if you had asked somebody at the beginning of 2018, where would you least expect there to be a strike wave and a successful strike wave at that, I guarantee you that West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, these are the states that people would put at the bottom of the list, you know, that most of the time were written off as, uh, you know, so-called Trump country, uh, despite the fact that, you know, 
Bernie Sanders, for instance, won every county in the 2016 primary in West Virginia, same in Oklahoma. So the narrative that, you know, red states are just uh, these backwaters in which everybody is brainwashed by Fox News and Trump was just clearly shown to be false. And so what you saw in West Virginia, then you saw really spread across the country in the wake of the example that West Virginia created. Um, you saw teachers fighting back for very similar issues, better pay, fighting against privatization, fighting for union rights, and ultimately really just fighting for the ability to be good teachers, which means also having sufficient funding for students. You know, one of the reasons why the strikes were so successful was that they were never just about pay for teachers or even just pay for support staff and teachers. It was, there was always uh, demands raised for more funding, for really types of issues that could bring in students, that could bring in the community. And so it was able to counter this Republican and corporate Democrat narrative that unions and strikes are just about greedy workers fighting for themselves. And so they were able to bring in the community um, and really, I think, change the course of U.S. politics for uh, good. One of the interesting things about witnessing all of that, especially, you know, from my perspective as a former educator myself, although it's been a little while since I've been in the classroom, but is 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 watching this happen here at the tail end of more or less 15 to 20 years of the charter school movement, of the privatization movement, of the busting of teachers unions or the attempt to bust teachers unions, all of these sort of anti-union, anti-public education movements that we've seen funded by Wall Street and all of these other types that have been seemingly hegemonic uh, within the space of education. And all of a sudden, here we have in, in 2019, an uprising by public school teachers all over the country. So can you talk about how this is, in some sense, a backlash against what we've witnessed over 15, 20 years? Right. Yeah, the two go hand in hand. Uh, there's really very few sectors of American society that have seen such a dramatic regression uh, over the last 15, 20 years, you know, public education in a lot of states was uh, was pretty good. In California, it had issues uh, issues of racial segregation, but compared to where it was now, you know, it's just light and day, night and day. So what you saw, you know, in the 90s and after, but particularly since the Great Recession, was just a really dramatic cut in uh, public school funding, a stagnation in wages. Uh, you know, rock skyrocketing class sizes, uh, textbooks that just became outdated and never replaced. And so really basic um, aspects of being able to be a teacher became very difficult. This is one of the things that maybe the press has missed in talking about these strikes, but a lot of the motivating factor for teachers was just that all of these cuts combined with the really draconian regime of standardized testing that was imposed uh, to bust unions, to bust teacher autonomy, um, and to impose privatization. All of this has just made it so hard to teach, you know, just to do your job. Um, and that created a lot of anger, created a lot of frustration, it created a lot of former teachers. You know, a lot of people just dropped out uh, or they tried to move to another state. You're speaking so, to one. Yeah, exactly. So that story was, um, you know, just over and over and over again repeated. And something turned. Uh, there had been early inclinations that something might break in education. You saw the 2012 
Uh, Chicago teacher strike was a big inspiration for some of the organizers in 2018. But really the West Virginia example, because it was just so powerful, you know, the country was watching. All of a sudden, any educator across the country, no matter whether it's blue state, red state, said, well, if they could do it there, why can't we do it here? You know, if they were able to get what they needed, uh, we need that too, where we're at. And so that really is what uh, you saw in the strike wave. And it, as you mentioned, really, I think has reversed, at least in the public narrative, this uh, discourse that was so dominant, really amongst Democrats and Republicans, that the solution to this crisis in public schools is busting unions, is bringing in charters and privatization. And now, now what you see is that all of the Democrats and even some Republicans are bending over backwards to say they support teachers, they support public education. We've won the public argument. The question is now, how do we win the uh, material fight to make sure that we have the funding necessary to create the schools that they're all promising us now? Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about um, um, following all of these different uprisings is that each one is different. Each one is unique. My personal experience is in New York City. New York City is a very unionized city. The uh, the, the New York City teachers have their own union local, one of the largest in, in the country, the UFT. And um, there's a lot of internal politics there. So you see left progressive uh, teachers who are, you know, sort of like-minded as you and I are, who are basically fighting within that union, creating their own caucus, trying to take over power within that union. Whereas in places like West Virginia, and elsewhere where the unions are much weaker, you've seen everything from, you know, uh, infighting public uh, sit-ins to wildcat strikes. Yeah, I think that generally speaking, the, the course of the Red Fred movement has looked different in states where there's collective bargaining and the right to unionize uh, and the right to strike. Um, so, and in states where there's not. So you can think about the red state strikes and blue state, you know, as a shorthand for that. So the dynamic in Arizona, Oklahoma, Kentucky, places like that really relied a lot more on social media. It was a lot more volcanic. And, and that had its strengths and its limitations. I, I think that ultimately, um, if you want to look towards a model that is going to build lasting power, in some ways it was the, the strikes in Chicago, in Los Angeles, places where you did have a stronger union and in which rank and file activists, as you mentioned, were able to win the leadership of their unions by building caucuses and, and, and to transform their unions into um, organizations that were really building power, that were oriented towards um, reaching out to the community, that were oriented towards militant mass action. And because they were able to use the union structure to build towards their strikes, and particularly in Los Angeles and Chicago, you know, people need to study that. They, their movement is a lot stronger now, whereas in the red states, the it was almost like this volcanic uh, eruption, but it made it harder to sustain the movement afterwards. So I think that really, hopefully, what we're going to see across the country now is a revitalization of unions and the transformation of unions in that process. I guess well, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk about uh, some of the potential solutions and what you see on the horizon in terms of the, the coming fights and the fights that we need to win in education. Uh, come back after the break. I'll continue the conversation with Eric Blanc. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, 
regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about sufferer at all Joshua said One man have too many While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and ends Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Socialism is And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Eric Blanc. Follow him on Twitter at underscore Eric Blanc. Uh, and of course, the book Red State Revolt. Got to get yourself a copy of that really important reading. So um, talk to me a little bit, if you could, about high stakes testing and some of these other aspects of um, teacher evaluation that has worked its way into this whole fight. Because, you know, as like I said, as a former educator, my wife is an educator. I know very kind of intimately the ways in which tests and data are being used as levers against teachers, against teachers' unions. So can you speak to that a little bit and then maybe how some of the teachers are fighting back against that? Yeah, so the basic story is the following. The billionaires that are funding and organizing the movement to privatize public education um, have really pushed this idea that the metric through which you evaluate whether a school is succeeding, whether a teacher is succeeding, is how students do on a standardized test. Now, that's actually pretty anomalous. Most countries don't have that level of um, focus on standardized testing as the kind of end-all be-all for education, because for anyone who's taught, you realize that uh, you know students are different uh, depending on the individual, depending on what city you're in, depending on uh, their background. And so there's not a one-size-fits-all uh, metric that works to judge the you know evolution of, of a student's uh, progress. So nevertheless, this has been imposed not because it actually has any pedagogic value, but because it's extremely useful for the billionaires that want to destroy public education um, to be imposed because it does a few things. It allows districts to punish and close public schools that don't do well on standardized testing. It allows uh, in that process to undermine unions and unions, teachers unions are the strongest unions in the country right now. And so if you're able to use low test scores as a excuse to close down public schools that are unionized and replace them with charter schools, what you're doing in that process is undermining the really last bastion in a lot of places, the labor movement, the last bastion of working people to have a lever to be able to fight for things like progressive taxation, to fight for living wages, not just for educators, but really across the board. So I do think that the push towards standardized testing, which was imposed just as much by the Democratic Party 
um, and the Republican Party in government. This has really brought teachers to the edge. And luckily now we're seeing a pushback against that. Um, just the other day, Bernie Sanders had this really fantastic editorial in USA Today, um, the anniversary of No Child Left Behind, basically saying it's time to leave behind the standardized testing regime. It's been proven to be a failure. And I think that um, idea has more and more caught hold, both because just the data shows that even on their own metrics, the standardized testing regime doesn't work, and because uh, teachers now have power and they realize that they can reverse all of these things that have been imposed upon them and upon students for almost decades now. Indeed, and I think another aspect of this that also is somewhat underreported is the fact that this has a racial component to it. Uh, the the outcome of this oftentimes is a sort of resegregation of the education system. I witnessed it happen in Harlem in my own career, uh, watching the way in which certain kids get filtered into certain schools and other kids into other schools, the way that they're separated, uh, the discipline, the way that that works, and the way that it follows some of these students. So you create essentially this sort of tiered education system, which, I mean, in and of itself is problematic, but then that extends out uh, further into the community. And as you mentioned, uh, teachers' unions are the last bastion of uh, labor in many of these communities. And in fact, the schools themselves, the buildings and the schools as institutions are oftentimes one of the final anchors to these communities, community meeting places where people can go, people can exchange information and so forth. So there is the social component to the education aspect that really does need to be considered. Yeah, and I think that there's a broader point there, which is, you know, uh, schools and students succeed in part when society as a whole succeeds, which is to say that the number one metric that is real for being able to assess uh, whether a student is likely to succeed or not is whether they're poor or whether they're rich, right? And so poor neighborhoods, predominantly uh, black and brown communities you know, the students there are facing traumas and they're facing just day-to-day -day grind issues of themselves and their family. That obviously is going to make it much more difficult for them to do well on a standardized test than a lily white suburb in which students uh, have, you know, just a completely different set of resources, both at school and, and their home. So the idea that you're going to have some uh, standardized test is going to be able to equally put uh, students at these really disparate uh, levels of support on the same playing field is just ludicrous. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much pushback. Absolutely. And the other aspect of this that really kind of drives me nuts is that so much of it is just lies, uh, you know, and, and fraud. Like, for instance, when, when you hear, you know, about how great charter schools are and they never tell you that the most detailed and comprehensive studies show that 80% uh, of charter schools perform at or below the public schools that they allegedly replace. So uh, the, very, the very notion that charter schools improve education is not borne out by the data. Yeah, I mean, even on their own criteria, right? Like, even if you think that um, test scores are, are a great indicator, which I don't, even on their own criteria, uh, their programs have failed. Even Bill Gates and you know, and some of the others have acknowledged that now. So they're they're at an impasse, partly because of that, and then also just partly because of the movement. Absolutely. So in, in the in the time that we have remaining, I want to talk a little bit about Bernie Sanders and, and you're a surrogate for his campaign. So I want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about uh, what he's put forward on the education front. You kind of already alluded to it, but I want to throw out a couple of other um, uh, you know aspects to this as well. Diane Ravitch, probably one of the most prominent education uh, uh, voices in the country, has been somewhat vocal during this election cycle. And uh, I believe 
Steve has had conversations with some of the candidates. So could you speak to some of the things that Bernie has put out there and how that relates to maybe some of the proposals that she has put forward or other activists prominent in the field? Yeah. The the thing to look to is Bernie's education plan, which is called the Thurgood Marshall Plan for Public Education. And really what it does is condenses all of the major demands that the movement itself has put forward over years. So none of this was invented by Bernie. He doesn't say he invented it. What's amazing about it, though, is he listened to teachers. He listened to teachers' unions. He listened to advocates like Diane Ravitch. And really what you see there in this document, this plan, which will get implemented when Bernie wins, is a synthesis of the vision for the types of public schools that we need uh, to make sure that every educator in this country can thrive and that every student can thrive. And so it has a lot of really concrete provisions. One of the things that I think is really uh, very visionary, in addition to calling for a massive reinvestment in schools instead of uh, prisons and wars, is you have a call for uh, supporting a national moratorium on increased funding for charter schools, which actually the NAACP had raised. And so this is really a pioneering demand, which I think can set uh, a really useful framework for how we move forward and how you can judge the difference between Bernie and some of the other Democratic candidates who say they support public education, but really still have a foot in the door of the privatizer billionaire bot establishment. You know, other really important uh, aspects of this is Bernie's calling for a $60,000 a uh, basic starting point for teachers in this country so that you can have uh, teachers be able to last more than three or five years, which is the norm right now, so that they can stay in the communities that they uh, want to serve. And really across the board, what's so exciting about the the Bernie campaign is not even just the policies, and there's a lot more of them, we can talk about them, but that the way he's relating the policies has to do with also the whole vision for how we're going to win them which is that it's not enough just to have good plans. Uh, you need to be able to have a movement to win them. Because, you know, to be real, to win the types of schools we need, we've seen we're going up against some of the most, you know, most influential, most uh, the richest corporations and billionaires in the world. And so what the Bernie campaign is doing, and I think really uh, inspiring, is elevating the voices of teachers who have gone on strike, of unions that have uh, raised the fight for themselves, for their students, for communities of color. And because of that, you're seeing a, you know, a groundwell of support amongst educators for Bernie. Listeners should know that the number one donor to the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, the number one profession is teachers, right? And uh, the one of the unions that's probably most uh, influential in the nationwide Red for Ed, Red for Ed movement, uh, United Teachers Los Angeles, which led a really you know, massive strike in early 2019 has endorsed Bernie Sanders in large part because of this vision for public education and this vision for really social movements from below to win uh, change in education and across the board. So the Bernie Sanders moment combined with the teacher strike wave is really a unique historic opportunity for rebuilding our schools and rebuilding working class power. And it seems one of the prime areas where you will have that crossover with potential conservatives who might otherwise recoil at the idea of Bernie Sanders because they have some sort of, you know, uh, communist villain in their minds. But in fact, what we saw in these red states especially is that regardless of the politics and social and cultural climate of the state, everybody's got kids, everybody cares about their kids. And in every state, regardless of its politics, you saw an outpouring of support 
support for those teachers. And I think that there is sort of a universal uh, respect for teachers that is kind of regaining its footing, that which had been lost over the last couple of decades. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. The, the strikes, particularly in these red states, just brought together people from all across the board. You know, a lot of educators, like a lot of working people, um, voted for Trump, but that didn't stop them from going on strike against Republican governors uh, and legislators and fighting, uh, you know, black, white, brown uh, together. And so what you see is education and I think other issues as well, healthcare, you know, some of the real pressing things that felt all working people, you're able to bring together a coalition that doesn't currently exist because nobody's been actually fighting for the working class. And so when you have a political candidate who's clearly foregrounding the things that people feel in their daily lives uh, are necessary to change, well, then a lot of types of coalitions and types of political dynamics that seem impossible to imagine right now become possible. So in Arizona, just to give you an example, the strikes there, uh, a lot of the core leaders were socialists. They were Bernie Sanders supporters, Democratic socialists. And the media went on a big Red Scare campaign trying to demonize the Red for Ed movement, saying it was like a communist plot, all of this. And it didn't work. You know, teachers, not everyone was a democratic socialist. Most of them weren't, right? Most of them weren't Bernie Sanders supporters. But they wanted to fight for their schools. And they knew that the media was demonizing their movement. And they stuck by their leaders, whether they're democratic socialists or not. So I think that that bodes well, both for the possibility of the movement not to succumb to the threats of the corporate establishment. And I think, honestly, it also bodes well for the possibility for Bernie Sanders to win in a lot of places where you might think that the, you know, reds, the red baiting would work. It hasn't worked so far, and I don't think we should be uh, expecting that it will. Final question. Aside from getting themselves a copy of Red State Revolt, what do you suggest people who might be listening uh, who are interested in these issues, but maybe there aren't, te- maybe they aren't teachers or whatever, what would you suggest they do to, if they want to get involved or they want to provide support? Any resources, any ideas that you'd want to throw out there to people? Yeah, let me throw out a few different ones. Uh, as far as reading goes, um, everyone should read Jane McAlevey's book, No Shortcuts, which is probably the best thing you're going to read on how to become an organizer. And that is, you know, just a central reading. I would read Labor Notes and get involved in Labor Notes trainings where they happen, which is a network of, you know, the fight back wing of the labor movement. It has a publication and has conferences locally. I would get involved if you're not already a union member, you know, see if you can organize a union where you work. If not, get involved in local chapters of Democratic Socialists of America, which are organizing a lot of solidarity with workers. Um, and organizing, you know, workers themselves. So I think that really at this moment, there's a lot of different ways to get involved. And finally, you know, obviously, I think that you should get involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign because we have this once in a lifetime opportunity to win the types of schools we need and get, you know, elect a president who's going to fight for all working class people. And that includes educators and students. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for all of the work that you did in, in documenting these strikes. It's really important, not only for teaching us about what's going on, but really for the historical record. That's something that people are going to look back at many years from now, and we're thankful to have that in the historical record. So, uh, again, the book, Red State Revolt, The Teacher Strike Wave and Working Class Politics from Verso. Follow um, all of Eric's work. He's a regular at Jacobin, The Nation, The Guardian, a bunch of other places. Follow him on Twitter at underscore Eric Blanc. Eric, thanks again for for coming on Counterpunch Radio today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was really fun. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.